Good morning. This morning's scripture is John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Have you ever noticed how sometimes it's 
a lot easier to pray, talk to God, when you're by yourself than when you know other people are listening. You ever experienced that? Um, by the way, if, if your experience is the opposite, then you should ask some other questions. <laughs> I love to pray when people are listening. Oh, really? Tell me why. Um, but, but I think we're, all, we're comfortable with that, right? I mean, even, even if you're not a Christian or don't consider yourself a follower of Christ, um, maybe you would agree with me that spiritual activities or spiritual conversation or, or what you believe or think in a spiritual sense, that, that feels very private or personal. You know, some of us are comfortable talking to other people about God, but, but many of us, you know, would say, well, having other people listen while I talk to God, well, that's, that's a different story. That's, that's really vulnerable. Well, take note of that emotional experience, okay? Because when we listen in on John 17, the way Jesus is talking to God the Father here, ranks among the most personally vulnerable moments in the entire gospel. He's about to die. You realize that? And he knows it. And he knows his closest followers are about to abandon him. And he knows that his own heavenly father is about to forsake him. So if you had to choose the most difficult, stressful, and most painfully vulnerable night of Jesus' life, this is it. This isn't scripted. He's not, he's not issuing a, a final press release. He's pouring out his soul to God, friends. And for our sake, I'm really thankful that the Spirit saw fit to inspire we believe the Apostle John, to write these words down for us. Because John 17 gives us a glimpse into the very heart of God. I want you to think about it that way because that's what it is. We, we discover what Jesus really cares about, his, his deepest passions and desires. We learn what he longs to see come to pass in our life and, and in our church. And along the way, he, he teaches us how, how we should join him in praying for ourselves and praying for one another. So I'll be the first to say, there's a lot in here that's hard to understand. I, I told Josh earlier this week that it doesn't get much deeper than John 17. But know that Jesus isn't using religious jargon here. Maybe it struck you that way. He's not. Nor is he being aloof. You know, one more time to give the spiritual spiel. <laughs> no, he's, he's pouring out his soul to his heavenly father. Couldn't be more personal. And big picture, Jesus prays for two things here, okay? Don't, don't get, lose the force for the trees. He prays for the sake of God's glory. Verse one, Father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. We lingered there last Sunday. And he prays for the sake of God's people. Verse nine, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For the sake of God's glory, for the sake of God's people. 
But before he mentions a whole list, really, of specific requests for God's people, especially in verses 11 through 26 or so, Jesus addresses two preliminary issues in verses 6 through 11 that are really important, friends. And I think it's helpful to wrap our minds and hearts around them by by asking two questions, because these are really questions Jesus is answering. First, who are the people of God for whom Jesus is praying? And then second, why is Jesus praying for the people of God? (laughs) We, We need to understand who God's people are and why Jesus is praying for them, for us, before all the requests and ask that he brings on our behalf can be understood and really make sense. So let's, let's linger on these two questions. First, who are the people of God? If you've read through this a couple of times, we've done it twice now, maybe you've noticed that in a primary way, Jesus is praying in verses 6 all the way through 19 for his closest band of disciples known as the apostles. And then in verse 20, look there, he makes a a clear transition to praying for all who would join them in following Jesus in the future. But but this is really important, okay? His description in verses 6 through 19 of who his disciples are, why he's praying for them, what he's praying for them, is no less true for the people of God today than it was for the people of God back then. Okay, so notice who he's in a primary way praying for, close span of his disciples, the apostles, but don't think, oh, well then that's just like reading somebody else's mail. No, it's not. (laughs) Because who were they? Followers of Jesus. Christian, who are you? Follower of Jesus. So Jesus mentions two defining marks of God's people in verses six through eight. Okay, here's the first one. First, they are chosen by God. Look at verse six. I have manifested, or just the big word for made known, your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. All throughout the Bible, when scripture speaks of somebody's name, they're capturing the essence of somebody's character. And that's important for us because we don't often think like that. But, you know, earlier in American history, names work like that, right? So, you know, Mr. Cooper was a what? A barrel maker, right? And, and Miss Taylor was what? A, a seamstress. And so in a similar way, Jesus is making known the Father's name by doing what? By showing us what God is like. Or by showing us what God is doing or how he rolls This is who God is. This is what God is doing. And and notice that's not something we discover by looking in ourselves. It's really important. We're, we're, We're even leaning on our own reason. In Jesus, God does what? He reveals himself to us. He makes himself known to us. We don't create or decide what is true about God. God tells us what is true about himself by coming to earth and showing us firsthand. So who did Jesus do that for? To whom did he reveal 
the saving glory of the Father. He didn't do it for everyone. He manifested the Father's name to God's chosen people. To those whom the Father, what? Gave him out of the world. You know, I I think as Americans, it's fair to say we love to own stuff. Do you agree with that? why Amazon Prime is like the best thing going. But we really don't like, we despise the idea of anyone owning us. Don't tread on me. And yet Jesus says in verse 9, look there, speaking of the people of God, Father, they are yours. (laughs) Ownership language. So what does he mean? Well, he's talking about the divine work of election, friend. All of us are born willingly running away from God and toward hell. All of us are. But God, in the mystery of his mercy, he he elects or, or chooses to draw back this man and this woman, this man, that woman, to himself. For salvation, not not against our will, but by sovereignly changing our will so that we want to run toward God instead of running away from God. And, And were it not for God's mercy in doing that, in election, there would be no people of God, brothers and sisters. Hear that. And that's not a cause for pride or or accusations of injustice. That's a cause for grateful wonder and awe. Because think about it. Even before we come to faith, there's a crucial sense in which we are already the fathers by virtue of him choosing us, by virtue of election. He owns us because he chose us for himself. So here's a question. How does the father ensure that all whom he has chosen are in fact saved? Ever wondered that? We get a glimpse of that here. The father gives or entrust them to the son that he might save them to the uttermost. Look, look back. Yours they were, Jesus says, and the father did what? You gave them to me. You gave them to me. You entrusted them to me. How many of you are watching baseball playoffs right now? Yeah, I am. So don't fear, I'm not going to slight you. Or <laughs> You should follow Jesus instead. No. Thank you, Garrett Roger in the back. His hand is still up. He has two hands up. Yes. It's fantastic. May the Braves win today. But, you know, thinking about baseball, that's kind of where my mind is right now. We, we think a baseball player is pretty good if he gets on base 40% of the time. That's actually really good. That's like Ted Williams kind of good. church is laughing because my dad is named Ted Williams. (laughs) So notice what is, what does Jesus say? Look at the end of verse six about all whom the father gives him. Look at the end of verse six. They, no exceptions, no, all but a few, they have kept your word. 
100% of the time. Not 40%, 100%. Jesus doesn't lose a single one, friends. Not a single one. He's a good shepherd. Rest in that, brothers and sisters. Rest in that. If you're a Christian, your, your salvation, your perseverance in the obedience of faith doesn't rest on your power to hold fast to God, but on God's power to hold fast to you. You need to know that. You couldn't be in more capable hands. That's what Jesus is saying here. So the first mark of the people of God for whom Jesus prays, who are they? They are chosen by God. Here's the second mark. Look at verse seven. They're characterized by obedient faith in God's word. And these things go together. What's Jesus say? Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them, what? The words that you gave me. So what is Jesus saying? He gave the people of God. Something that God the Father gave him in the first place. You know, it's like receive a gift, give a gift. Okay, what's the gift? It's the word of God. The words of God. Think about this. Why is human language a suitable and sufficient means of communicating the knowledge of God. There are a lot of people that question that, by the way. You know, human language, it's ultimately just a power construct. And so anything that's communicated through language is ultimately rooted in a power grab, et cetera, et cetera. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying human language is a delightfully suitable and sufficient means of communicating the knowledge of God. Why? Because God in his infinite wisdom has chosen to reveal himself through words. (laughs) He chose to do that. We didn't come up with that. God decided that human language words, the words you've been learning ever since you were a little kid, that is a sufficient Suitable, delightful means. Letting my creatures know who I am. And that's why your relationship to God's word, think about this. Your relationship to God's word, the Bible, I can't put it more directly than this, is the best indicator of your relationship to God. Why? Because to obey or disobey God's word is to obey or disobey God himself. Not because God's word is God. We don't worship the Bible. But because God relates to us, makes himself known to us through his word. That's his chosen means. And notice Jesus is saying here as he keeps going that there's a specific way the people of God respond to the word of God that distinguishes, sets them apart as the people of God. Look at verse eight with me. What do we do? Because we're the people of God. We receive it. We give careful attention to it. We we refuse to ignore or disregard it. We recognize or or come to know the divine authority it has, especially in what it says about Jesus, that he isn't just a man. He's the son of God sent from heaven, from the father to rescue us. And then we believe or trust God as a result. What's that mean? That, That when we come to know God, through the word of God, it causes us 
if I could, to lean the weight of our life on him. That's what that believe is about. We, we entrust ourselves to him, friends, as the only one who can save us, not just from, from sin and death in general, but in every single stinking situation in your life, every experience of trouble, he's the only one that can save us. And the defining mark of genuine belief, genuine trust, is exactly what Jesus describes it as in verse six. Look back there at the end of verse six. The people of God keep or obey or surrender to or submit their life under or refuse to ignore or la, 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 the word. But it's not because we have to, have to, or ought to, but because we want to. (laughs) Why? Because we know God is our only hope, period. (laughs) And so we joyfully surrender ourselves to his care. So so out of the gate, who are the people of God? They're, They're chosen by God. They're characterized by obedient faith in his word. And as I say that, lest you despair, Christian, of ever passing that test, okay? Before we move on, let's just pause here for a minute and notice something. Who is Jesus primarily talking about? In an initial direct way, he's talking about his closest disciples, right? I mentioned that. Well, who were they? In case you don't know, they were men who kept doubting him and kept getting his identity wrong and expecting things of him they shouldn't expect and making all kinds of arrogant statements to him and each other. They kept sinning against him and sinning against each other. And on so many levels, his disciples were a mess. Just a mess. Ah, because of poor leadership. (laughs) No, because like us, they're sinners living in a broken world with trouble without and trouble within. But how does Jesus talk about them? How does he describe them as as he pours out his heart to the Father the night before his death? What does he say? They have kept your word. They have received your word. They've come to know in truth that I came from you. They have what? Believed you sent me. What what grace that is, brothers and sisters. What grace that despite all their weaknesses, all their failures, when, when Jesus looks at the people of God, he sees the grace of God on the people of God. Is that how you see the people of God? Is that how you see the church? Is that how you construct your evaluation of this body? Or the last church you were part of or the next church God will lead you to? When you see the people of God, do you you see what Jesus sees? Because that's what's real. (laughs) The grace of God. Here's my favorite bishop again. Jesus sees far more in his believing people than they see in themselves or than others see in them. The least degree of faith 
It's very precious in his sight. Though it's no bigger than a mustard seed, it's a plant of heavenly growth and makes a boundless difference between the possessor of it and the man of the world. Wherever the gracious savior of sinners sees true faith in himself, however feeble, he looks with compassion on many infirmities and passes by many, many defects. That's who your God is, Christian. What's that mean? There is no privilege or identity or blessing better than being numbered among the people of God. Period. Because the Savior's promised this to us. Look in verse 9. I am praying for them. He's praying for you. Why, why would God, because that's who Jesus is, pray for you? Well, because he's our great high priest. It's what he does. It's who he is. And, and Jesus' labor of praying for his own did not stop on this particular night. What is Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord of the universe, doing right now, friends? He is seated in heaven, interceding for the people of God. Why? Because it feels good to say that. No, because of Hebrews 7, 25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. While I'm speaking and you're listening, Jesus is praying for you. Can, can you. can you imagine a better confidence than that? Christ himself is praying for you. When you're working, Jesus is praying for you. When you're sleeping, Jesus is praying for you. When you're, when you're intimately aware of his presence and tears are coming down your face, Jesus is praying for you. When all that's gone and he feels a million miles away, Jesus is praying for you. And because of what? He is both infinitely pleasing to the Father and he always prays in accordance with the will of God. What does God the Father say back to Jesus every time he prays? Every time. Is the answer ever no? No, it's always yes. It's always yes. His mercies are new every morning. They never come to an end. And some of you, I think, at least are, are familiar with the story of Peter. One of Jesus' closest disciples. I dare to count him among the mess I alluded to earlier, like us. And you know, in the next chapter, Peter disowns the Lord. He betrays the Lord. He, he turns away from him in the most vulnerable hour of his life. When, when Jesus needed a friend, Peter ran. Just took off. His faith was so weak. But I want you to listen to what Jesus says in Luke twenty two thirty one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, pal. That your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, Peter, strengthen your brothers. That's your only hope, Christian. That you, 
through repentance of sin and faith in Christ, you have a great high priest who is interceding for you right now. Tomorrow, there is a great high priest interceding for you. The next tomorrow, which is what my six-year-old calls two days from now, (laughs) you have a savior who's interceding for you. When you wake up in three tomorrows and you're not even sure you believe the word of God that felt so true on Sunday, you have a savior who's interceding for you. When you are riddled with unbelief and you cannot believe that you did that again, you have a savior who is interceding for you. When you anticipate the hour of your death and part of you thinks, I wonder if I can hold fast to Christ that long as my body falls apart. You have a savior who is interceding for you. The only reason, the only reason God's saving purposes for our life are ever fulfilled is because we have a savior who's interceding for us. That's your story. Here goes Ryle again. This special intercession of the Lord Jesus is one grand secret of the believer's safety. He is daily watched and thought for and provided for with unfailing care by the one whose eye never slumbers and never sleeps. They stand and persevere to the end. Not because of their own strength and goodness, but because Jesus intercedes for them. The true servant of Christ ought to note this and walk out of church that morning unaffected and unchanged. No! He ought to lean back his soul. Christian, lean back your soul on the truth before us and take great comfort in it. Yes, Jesus loves the whole world. That's why the father sent him into the world. But his intercession, his priestly mediation is reserved for the chosen people of God. And as such, you Christian, couldn't be more blessed. That's the answer to who are the people of God. Now, briefly, why is Jesus praying for us? Okay, we'll move a little bit faster here. But he mentions several reasons in verses 9 through 11, as if this can't get any better. First, he says, look at verse 9 again. They are yours. They're yours, Father. He, he prays for us. Why? Because of the Father's sovereign purpose and election. The fact, we saw this last week, the fact that God has chosen a people for his own possession does not for one hot second cause Jesus to sit on the sideline of the redemption playing field. The fact that God has sovereignly chosen people for his own possession makes Jesus get in the redemption game. Or to switch metaphors, he prays for us because the work of salvation is a a family business. Look at verse 10. All mine are yours and yours are mine. Praise be to God. Second, Jesus prays for us because he is glorified through our salvation. Look at the end of verse 10. All mine are yours, yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. If you weren't here last Sunday, here's your review, okay? Jesus consistently presents his glory and our good as two sides of the same coin. That's his point. Okay, that the, the primary way he is glorified, the primary way we come to, to see and exult in the perfection of his beauty, 
is through the hour of his death. Why? Because it's through dying to save sinners like us that Jesus displays the supremacy of his power and wisdom and love. Two sides, same coin. So failing to redeem God's chosen people would mean what? Failing to glorify God's name. And because Jesus cannot fail to glorify God, he cannot fail to do what? To redeem the people of God. So his commitment to his own glory is the very measure of his commitment to our good, which is why we know the Lord's good purposes for us will ultimately prevail. Here's the final reason he prays for us. Jesus prays for us because he is not yet physically with us. Look at verse 11. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Well, as John 17 ends, Jesus is about to do what? He's, he's about to leave the earth via the way of his death, resurrection, and ascension. That the nature of his care for the people of God is changing from physical presence to heavenly intercession. It's changing. He's about to leave for home, in other words. But his followers are going to have to wait And we are two brothers and sisters. We are two. This, this world where we so love to buy our own our stuff, it's just not our home. It's not your home. We were created for the joy of heaven. And as long as we're in this world, what does First Peter 2 say? We're we're exiles. You, you've been watching those clips on TV of all the refugees from Afghanistan just coming through Dulles. You, you've seen them walking through the airport with all they own, looking totally out of place. By the way, I'm eager. Our staff deacon Craig Smith is, is working with Sean Roser, who you heard from earlier, to find a way that we can personally love and care for those that are coming to Richmond soon. So stay tuned for that. But but as you think about that, remember this. You too, Christian, are a sojourner in a foreign land. Okay? And and life in a foreign land comes with significant life-threatening challenges. Right? And so what does Jesus do in light of that? He, He brings a series of four specific requests in the rest of this chapter to God the Father on our behalf as sojourners in a foreign land. He prays for us. What's he pray? That we would be four things, ready? Faithful to Jesus, holy like Jesus, unified in Jesus, and glorified in Jesus. That's a serious prayer. (laughs) To which the father always says, maybe. No, (laughs) yes, right? He always says yes. So here's what we're going to do. We've got time to briefly hit the first one this morning. And then we'll come back to the next three next Sunday. Okay? So here's the first request Jesus makes for the people of God, given the reasons we just reviewed. May they remain and be faithful to Jesus. Faithful to Jesus. Okay, look at verse 11. 
Holy Father, Jesus prays, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. Now again, to modern ears, that can sound like a very strange thing to pray. Maybe even if you're not a Christian, you've heard people pray or maybe even thrown up a prayer yourself with something like keep them safe or, or keep them healthy or keep them out of trouble. But, but keep them in your name. What, what does that mean? Well, remember what I said earlier about the biblical significance of somebody's name. Okay, to speak of God's name is, is to speak of what? The essence of his character. It's a description of who God is. So who is God? Jesus tells us, verse 11, he's our holy father. Holy father. He's holy in the, in the sense that he's, he's characterized by transcendent moral purity. He, he's not a He's not a buddy that we hang out with. He's an all-consuming fire. And yet, Jesus also calls him Father. Holy Father. He's a father in relation to the Son because he's the unbegotten one, the, the source and fountain of the Godhead. And he's also a father in relation to all who are united to the son by faith. Why? Because one of the craziest spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that you receive, Christian, through faith union with Christ, is you are adopted as a beloved son or daughter of the king. So when Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, he's asking God the Father to keep all his disciples, all his followers, what? Clinging to, devoted to, leaning the weight of their life on all that God is as our creator and redeemer. Just to illustrate this, when I'm, I love to backpack and places we do it keep getting crazier and crazier. At some point, my aging body will tap out. But when I'm crossing a steep snowfield in the Alps, I lean the weight of my life on the steel crampons on my boots and the carbon fiber poles in my hand. I lean the weight of my life on that. I, I'm depending on them to, to uphold me, to preserve me. I, I'm literally entrusting my life to those things in a physical sense. And, and that's a picture. Of, of the kind of total dependence and confidence Jesus wants us to have toward him in a spiritual sense. That to pray, keep them in your name, is another way of saying, Lord, would you keep them dependent on you? Would you keep them faithful to you? Help, help them to persevere in the faith and not lose their, their trust and commitment and passion for you. And how do we express and keep on expressing our trust and commitment and passion for God. Well, we keep trusting and delighting and living for the one in whom he is perfectly revealed. We keep trusting and delighting in and living for Jesus. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. So we don't remain devoted to God. By just thinking true thoughts about him or, or going to church periodically or, or believing he exists or lighting prayer candles or, or some other preferred expression of spirituality. There is 
one way and only one way we remain faithful to God. What is that? We keep trusting and obeying and delighting in and devoting ourselves to and submitting to and following and loving and holding fast to Jesus. That's how we remain faithful to God. And Jesus gives two specific reasons here. He wants the father to keep us faithful to himself. Why does he care so much about that? Two reasons. We'll end with these. First, look at verse 11. He prays for the sake of our unity. Keep them in your name that they may be one, even as we are one. We're going to look closer at the nature and and purpose of our unity as the people of God next Sunday. But, But for now, just notice the priority and importance Jesus places on our unity. Listen, unity with one another on a horizontal level like this is only possible if we are each unified with God on a vertical level like this. Because when God unites us to himself in Christ, he unites us to one another in Christ. So why is our unity with one another so important to Jesus? It's because he wants us to experience nothing less than the very relational intimacy God himself enjoys. Think about this. He wants to bring us into an experience of the very life of God. Because from eternity past, what what have the Father and the Son and the Spirit, one God, three persons, enjoyed? Perfect harmony with one another, right? Jesus isn't talking, notice, about uniformity, where the Identity of the individual is just kind of dissolved in their tribe. (laughs) That the father doesn't cease to be the father, a distinct person from the son, even as he remains one with the son. He's not talking about uniformity. He's talking about unity, a relationship where the heart and mind and will of the father is the heart and mind and will of the son. And in the same way, when Jesus prays for the sake of our unity, he isn't praying for uniformity or that, that all the members of the church would just look the same or talk the same or sound the same. He's, he's praying for the kind of relationships where we are of one heart and one mind and one will because all of us are equally devoted to God. What he enjoys with the Father is what he so wants us to have as a church. And that is why our unity matters, brothers and sisters. Okay, it matters because it's how we experience and enter into the very life of God himself. Unity isn't the absence of conflict. It's what? The presence of relationship, okay? It's why things like making charitable judgments or believing the best about one another's motives, leaders included, and, and avoiding sins like gossip and slander are so important. It's, it's why practices like pursuing community, like Jody was talking about earlier, and not, not living in isolation from each other are so important. Because if we don't devote ourselves to building strong relationships in the church and work really hard to restore them when they are tested or broken or fragmented by conflict, then we are actively opposing the purpose of God for our life serious. 
We're functionally undoing what Jesus prayed for and died to secure. Don't don't think of unity as an HR buzzword. Unity is God's agenda in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what he is getting after through the gospel. It's what he's pursuing for us and accomplishing through the gospel. So he prays for the sake of our unity. Here's the the final reason Jesus prays we would be kept faithful to him. He prays for the sake of our joy. Look at verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. (laughs) How do we even wrap our minds around that? (laughs) Here's the best way I can think of to say this, okay? God wants you to be happy. Do you realize that? That's what Jesus is saying. God wants you to be happy, Christian. It's one of the main reasons he's committed to keeping you faithful to himself. He wants you to be happy in him and gloriously so. Think about this. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need you. He's not emotionally incomplete without you. Hear that. He has always been perfectly happy before you were born or existed. He will always be perfectly happy no matter how you respond to him. He's God. So why is he radically committed then to guarding our faith? What's his angle? Well, I just had a little hole in my heart. No, he didn't. No, why? What's his angle? It's for the sake of your joy, Christian. And his glory and your joy. That that Jesus longs, what's he long for? For you to know the joy of being satisfied in him in the same way he has the joy of being satisfied in himself. That's why he's going to the cross. It's, It's why he taught everything he did to his disciples in this whole book, John 15, 11. These things I spoke to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. How in the world do we experience that kind of joy? Through the gift of God's word. Through what? The things he has spoken. That's how Jesus keeps us faithful to himself. You see that? He opens our eyes to see again and again in the pages of his word just how worthy he is. And and as we see his worthiness again and again in the pages of his word, what do we experience? A gospel-centered unity and a gospel-centered joy. That's what happens. As the people of God, the Father is faithful to keep us faithful to the Son for the sake of our unity and our joy. And ultimately, that's not a work we do for ourselves. Hear that as I end, okay? It's a work God does in us and for us. What what does Jesus say? Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. He guarded his disciples, except for Judas, who he knew would betray him. And and now he's asking the father, what? Lord, keep doing the work I've been doing to keep them in your name. Does God use means to keep us faithful to Jesus? Answer, yes, Yes, okay? Do we have to keep believing God's promises, heeding his warnings, choosing to obey Jesus no matter the cost? Yes. But don't forget, Christian, your perseverance in the faith is ultimately God's work, not your work. God is the one who keeps you. 
God's the one who guards you. Through, through his intercession, the Savior loses none of all the Father entrusts to his care. So, so if you're struggling to trust God in some area of your life, cast yourself on his mercy. If you're struggling to obey God in some area of your life, cast yourself on his mercy. He will be faithful to keep you, friend. And I'm not just talking about the mornings where I'm feeling that, yeah, he's a keep it God. Let's go Monday. No. I'm talking about the mornings where your faith feels so weak. Maybe tomorrow. And though you wouldn't share it with anybody, a very true little part of you is thinking, I'm not sure I can do this follow God thing one more day. You know what you do then? You cast yourself on the God who keeps you. Again and again and again. Because the Father's answer to Jesus' prayer is always yes. Yes.